Thank you for joining us today. My name is Maccabee Griffin. And I'm Marcella. And this is Beyond the Pen, where we take the well-known adage, read between the lines to a whole new level and beyond. Each week we sit down with a new author to not only discuss one of their books, but also learn the story behind the story. Hey, Mac. Hello. How are you today? I am good. And I want to publicly apologize for not introducing you last week as well, because I have been getting some backlash for that. And I think you were behind it a bit. But I digress. I haven't said anything to anyone. Your army. Yeah, no, your army is getting to me and they're saying that I needed to apologize. So I publicly apologize for not saying hello. To Marcella from last week. So. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Mm. So guess what? What? I did it again. <laughs> you, of course you did it again. What of did you did. do? What did I you had, do, Marcella? I invited someone very special today. Ooh. Uh, oh, yeah. You're going to love her. You already love her. Yeah, no, yeah. you really love her. I love her. She is um, one of my best friends in this entire world. And she's written... An amazing book. Actually, three. Uh, one of them is not out yet. I just happen to have an insider's view on this. You know, I have the... Uh, ah, yeah. That's <laughs> what it is. Okay. Um, here is my friend, Jamie Harrison. She is retired military. She's a mom. Mom, first and foremost. She's a grandma. I won't tell anybody else that, Jamie. <laughs> well, now uh, everybody knows, so... Shush. She's dabbled in a lot of different things. She's she's such an entrepreneur and and a go getter, and she inspires me every day. And then there's something else about her that is pretty significant. But I think I want Jamie to tell everybody about that because this is the reason for her book. So without any further ado, Jamie Hairston. Thank you for having Yay. me. <laughs> Yay, Jamie. <laughs> I'm so excited. So I recently published my second book in a series. My series is Memoirs of a Black Sheep. And I got my cover here. All right. That's exciting. So it was inspired by real life events, but it is a fiction. Um, mm-hmm. for So I have creative <laughs> ability to write the story as I see fit. Mental health is really important to me. Substance abuse is really important to me, like substance abuse issues, not using... <laughs> And so I focus on the main character. A lot of this story is focused around her and her experience with her mental health and her substance abuse issues. And you're going to, throughout the series, kind of see her go from this person on her worst day. When you read the book, you meet her on her worst day. And the goal is to eventually let people see her blossom because I think that we don't hear enough about people in recovery being successful. So, Jamie, can you tell everybody, I mean, I've already covered like the little tiny basics of you. Can you tell us about you as a person, the most important things about you? And tell us something that nobody else I would know, but nobody else would know. Oh, gosh. Um, Well, I've been writing since I was a kid. Um, Writing is my passion. I got a degree and realized that that's not what I was passionate about. I am Definitely passionate about addiction issues, but I am more passionate about writing. Definitely an entrepreneur. Um, Very, I I do different things. Um, A friend of mine said that she's never seen somebody with so many side hustles, 
but writing is my passion. Um, I am also on occasion a spiritual tarot reader, but I mostly focus right now on writing and I have several projects in the works. Wow. That is, uh, yeah, that's a lot. And of course you would connect with Marcella on the uh, more spiritual sense as well. So That's not even how we met. <laughs> uh, I well, know. That, that wouldn't surprise <laughs> me. That doesn't surprise me one bit. Jane, how did, how did we meet? We were in a parenting group on Facebook and then we both That's got right. irritated with the moderator. <laughs> and I actually was trying to sling some of my weight loss products to you. And you were like, you should call me. And the next thing you knew, we couldn't quit talking. Yeah. Love at first sight. Go figure. <laughs> and the next thing you know, driving to New York a few years later, haven't even met this woman in person. And I'm like, hey, let me crash at your house for like a week. <laughs> I think our girls were three at the time. They're Now yes. they're both 10. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's but when crazy. we met, they were, they were infants. Oh, wow. Yes. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. they, it's weird because they have a really unique connection as well. They call so. each other cousin. It's yes. adorable. It's adorable. Yes. Yes. Well, I know that Mac has a lot of questions. So I'm gonna I'm gonna meet up and allow him to just, you know, ask his questions right now. Oh, he has your permission now. Awesome. <laughs> See, that's usually how she, she makes it um her show instead of our show. But she's uh, so bossy, but I love her. She is. She <laughs> is. Well, you know, that's Marcy for you. Um, only she gets to call me that. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. I, I, kind of, I was like, I was going through the book. And of, of course, I always read the acknowledgments as well. And then I saw Marcy on there. I was like, yep, that's Marcella. That's the only person I know. Wait, by acknowledgement. In oh, book yeah. one. Yeah. You have a little acknowledgement here. I have it right in front of me. I will read it to you as soon as I can get to it. Uh, the acknowledgements. I'll get to her part. Uh, let's see. My friend Marcy, who has listened to me yammer on about this book for years. That is the part of the acknowledgement she has for you. See, now you know. Now you got to open the book, Marcy. Now you got to read it. <laughs> now you really have to read it. <laughs> I love how I know this stuff before she knows it. You know what? I forgot I even put an acknowledgement in there. Wow. I'm glad you're acknowledging you have no clue you made an acknowledgement of the book. I did, but I, so by the time I got done with the, that book, because I had been working on it for five years and it went through probably at least 30 revisions. By the time I got done, I hated that book. I never wanted to see it again. I was like, if I have to read this book one more time, I'm my eyes are going to bleed because um, I just had to spend. So it took me almost five years to finally just come out with it and publish it. So that's part of the reason why I forgot because yeah, I was done with, I just got to where I can open it and look at stuff for reference as I go through the story so that things tie together nicely for the reader. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's funny that, um, that you talk about, cause I want to ask you about that a little bit later, but one of the things I wanted to touch on first was in the forward part. And it was one of the lines that you said, you said, and I quote, 90-day treatment programs are generally ineffective in long-term sobriety. Now, as a son of a man who has called himself an ongoing alcoholic for over 19 years before he passed on, I can definitely understand that statement. But for those who've presumably never been a part of this world that me and you have been a part of, you more than me, 
Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain to them why this doesn't work? Why this is ineffective? Do you think it's just because of the tools that they give you at the treatment centers or the people in the program? Or is it just like the time frame that they give you to get clean before it's- they send you on your way? It's it's really kind of a mixture of variables because every person is different. And that's not to say that some people don't go to a treatment for 90 days and recover. It's just that that's not the norm. Um, it, what I have found is that for actual change to take place, it typically takes two years, especially for alcohol users, stimulant users, heroin users, because it takes your brain almost two years to completely recover, like physically. And also it takes a long, long time for that person to undo that habit because part of part of substance abuse isn't just I need to get high, I need to use. Part of it is the ritual of using itself. So it's really hard sometimes for people to undo the need for that ritual because I know that if I used to go to the store and I had to get high first and now I have to go to the store and not get high first, that's a change in my routine. And even though I'm trying to stay clean, I'm used to taking an extra 10 minutes to get ready to go to the store. And part of that is habits. Part of it is physical, but part of it is habit. For some heavy substance users, and depending on the substance and body chemistry, it can take even longer for those post-acute withdrawal symptoms to subside. Yeah, because I've definitely noticed, like, especially when I was in college, you know, just like a majority of everyday uh, college student, there's at least somebody within their uh, circle of friends that has something close to some type of drug. It may be mushrooms, mm-hmm. marijuana, or mm-hmm. something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all, obviously we all know about alcohol being as addictive as a drug is. Right. Worse. Because right. it's legal. So one of the things I really thought was interesting that you were writing this not to glamorize substance use in any way, but creating a fictional book with scenes of your own battles with substance abuse and mental health. Mm -hmm. So what was it like reliving those events again, specifically the phone call with your mom and your son in chapter two? Okay. So it was almost therapeutic, but I thought, even though I've dealt with a lot of these things that it would (laughs) be easier to talk about because it's a fiction but there were moments where I was like god I really was not a nice person um but I think it also I've struggled with a lot of guilt and shame just in recovery um over the fact that my mother did raise my oldest children and one of the things that really kind of has helped me process that was All three of my boys have come to me and said, you know what, mom, we're okay with it. So you need to be too. And so even though in my head, I still kind of want to feel guilt and shame, I have to remind myself that we've had those conversations with each other where we're not as guilty or ashamed. And my son, my oldest son, who Mikey is based off of, um, recently read the book and was like, wow, it's insane to get your perspective, mom. And I think like that, we had this whole hour long conversation about that. And that is what really helped me realize, okay, I'm doing the right thing by writing this story because yes, he lived it and he can understand my perspective a little better because he had a lot of anger about addiction. But 
I don't have to feel guilty anymore because he's let go of that. So, do you think that's an, uh, another reason why it takes so long for a lot of people to get past that that addiction, and sometimes why they go right back to taking those substances? I do, and I also think that not every family is like mine. My family is unique, and I've been very, very blessed in the fact that I've had a lot of support even when people wanted to give up on me. And um, some one thing I've learned working in the field of addiction, especially when I was working with inmates, is a lot of those families have just kind of written those people off. And so, well, screw it, I've lost everything already anyway, so I might as well continue to use. And, you know, I do think there are some people who really do enjoy that way of life. I do. I've met people who they've been functionally addicted for years and years and years. And then I've met people that they really want to get clean and sober and they just don't have the support that they need. And and that is where my story is a little different because not everybody has that. But I think that if more people had support, they would be more successful for sure. But a lot of times I've seen people say, well, it's not my problem. So I don't understand why I have to be involved in their treatment. Well, we find that a lot of things stem from something going on at home with or with supports or people that are closest to the people and the people who are actually driving this person's emotions, they don't want to take responsibility. Well, it's not my fault that that's how you reacted, you know. And, and yeah, I want, I'm glad you said that because I, I remember when I was reading it, specifically the first chapter, when you were talking about how this character was involved in being brought into the ER, there's some type of, I'm presuming there was an accident in some way, shape or form because of the neck brace and everything of that nature. One of the things that I noticed was, is that the way that you presented the thoughts that were going through the character's head while they were in that room by themselves in the psych ward, it was kind of interesting how they were battling these thoughts of victimization, uh, denial. And the reason why I wanted, I was bringing up about specifically the phone call that you had with uh, within the book of talking to your mom when you first got a chance to, and then of course, talking to your son as well and hearing his words, was because I thought it was interesting how you reacted to that. And do you think this is something that's really keeping a lot of people from continuing on is because they are in denial that they have an issue because they can function so good? I think denial plays a role, but I also think self-talk plays a role for me. Self-talk was a huge role. I had low self-esteem for a majority of my life up to that point. Um, I had gone through a significant trauma, which you hear about in the story. I was going through a really bad, messy split with my husband at the time. And I think all of those factors played a role. But I was in denial because my justification was, but I couldn't do all these things without this. And so I think to a certain degree, denial plays a role. But I also think to a certain degree, circumstances play a role. And that definitely leads into my next one, because the way that you have written the book, there's a lot of jumping back and forth between the summer of 2006 and then back in the summer of 1988, the winter of 88, 93 mm -hmm. through the certain areas. 
why was it so important for you to actually present those specific times in your life within this this story? Because I wanted the reader to understand when we meet somebody who's addicted, we're meeting them on their worst day. We're meeting them in their worst chapter of life. And I wanted them to see that the way the character was brought up isn't something that would necessarily have led them to addiction. She went to church an awful lot. Her mother was very spiritual. She was very spiritual, but a series of just unfortunate events led her to using substances. And when you see this story under any other circumstances, this character's outcome could have been completely different, but it's not because she marries a man who sells drugs and then her father passes away and he's selling drugs that he wouldn't have normally sold because he's carrying the family through their grief. And I think um, I, it was important for the reader to get an understanding of all perspectives of the main character. Yeah, because I definitely thought that was interesting when you were talking about the character and dealing with their husband leaving and dealing with this other woman who really was like, in, in the words of the book, a downgrade. Yes. And to who And that was were. real life. And she and, was. <laughs> and you were happy to just throw shade. I mean, there was so much shade thrown at this woman. And I was like, damn. But those were things, um, sadly, those were things that when I was going through that, I really said. And I really said them to that woman. And, you know, she eventually, we kind of got civil with each other, but then it all went ugly again because the family was kind of like, okay, well, he's her problem now, you know, but I still felt that way because I was raised, as you see in the story, very like, you don't get a divorce once you're married. That's like a lifetime commitment. And so I wanted my family to work. Plus I had these three little boys. And I wanted these three little boys to be raised in their family. And it still took me many, many years to realize that would have been worse than what they ended up with. <laughs> you know, Sadly, that's it would have been worse than what they ended up with. Because, you know, with dad selling drugs and mom using, we're looking at what are going to be the outcomes for those children being raised in an environment like that. So, uh, Jamie, I know a lot about you. Mm -hmm. uh, and... I, I tell you all the time how proud I am of you. Thank you. Um, and then hearing this, it kind of it, it just reiterates those feelings that I have for you and and your story. Can you tell us how you feel you've grown in not just overcoming addiction and and all so many other things in your life, but in writing the book? How has it helped you to grow? Well, I have to say, and it's really interesting that you bring this up because I was I've been working on a blog. And my most recent post was about fear and recovery. And a lot of my life and my anxieties around situations all boiled down to fear. And as long as I had fear, I was hindering myself. And of course, in my blog, I relate how the fear related to my addiction. And it was initially, you know, I was afraid my family would find out. I was afraid I would run out. I was afraid, how am I going to manage getting through my day once I am out? When am I going to get more? And all of that was fear-based. And then in recovery, my fear was, how am I going to stay sober? And that's kind of what kept me relapsing initially in the beginning was 
I don't know how to do this sober. It's really, really uncomfortable. And I think overcoming that fear and not being afraid of having whatever uncomfortable conversations needed to be had or experiencing whatever uncomfortable emotions needed to be felt. I think once I was able to just get through it, um, that's what helped me grow. And I have a little phrase, I say, you have to get through it to get to it. And I think that's, that's where a lot of my growth came from. Man, there, there's so much there because I'm looking at this and I'm seeing just, it, it's not, it's not really just about addiction. It's about recovery and knowing who you are and what you're about and how you can become so much better when you actually finally realize one, that you are in denial, Mm -hmm. but two, how it affects your family around you because you had that fear holding you back for so many years. Now, I want to ask one real personal question real quick, because I want, Mm -hmm. I want our audience to really understand how addictive and how strong, how impactful this, this book is not only to yourself, but other people. How long were you an addict and what were you an addict of? So I was addicted to meth and I was addicted for two years. Uh, My initial use was literally functional use. It was um, every other day just stay up all night to clean the house, get up, maybe go to work, but then I would sleep the next night. But the last six months, I would say the last six months of my addiction to meth were the worst because that was my heaviest use. Um, That's when I stopped sleeping. That's when I stopped eating. That's when I lived, eat, and breathed (laughs) for when will I get more? How am I going to function? And that was probably the worst. And so, yeah, that that was probably the the worst was the last six months for sure and how many times have you gone in and out of these programs to get clean because i remember at at one point at the beginning there was a statement of i've tried this before and i've just went back to it in some way shape or form i would tell myself i'm gonna quit using and then i couldn't but i did only one treatment program okay And I was considered a successful case, um, but it was because I discharged successfully. It wasn't necessarily because I stayed sober. But it took me probably 10 years to really actually care about being sober. I was sober. I I was resentfully sober for about 10 years before I was willingly sober. And then um, actually what had happened was... I had a very close call where I had a relapse. I got arrested with meth on me. Um, I got very, very, the entire situation, I got very, very lucky. Um, And that was my wake up call. And I was like, I don't even really enjoy this anymore. And now I just got arrested. And I had to call my mom and be like, hey, you just got arrested with drugs. Yep. Nope. They're really mine. You know, and I think that's when I finally was like, yeah, I probably better start getting serious. So even though I was sober, I wasn't necessarily sober because I wanted to be. It's just because I just avoided people, places, and things where I might use if I thought I was going to use because I knew I was still pretty weak. And I'm glad you brought that last part specifically up because I know many other people who are dealing with addiction Mm -hmm. as well as 
like I said, my father was an ongoing alcoholic for 19 years. And the reason why I said ongoing was because he never saw himself as cured of that addiction. Even right. though, which is, here's one of the weirdest things that I've, here's how I found out he was an alcoholic. Now, obviously, just for background for purposes for everybody else, my dad was a Vietnam vet. Mm-hmm. He had to deal with a lot of shell shock still. Um, he was a paratrooper on his last drop. He actually landed in some bamboo sticks that were pointed up that went through his feet. And when he was trying to get up, he got shot. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of physical pain that he was dealing with as well. Mm-hmm. But I remember when I was within my teenage years, I don't remember specifically, I'll probably say about 14, 15 years old or so. I remember opening up at a cabinet and there was a bottle it was almost flash shaped glass mm-hmm. bottle of something. I didn't look at it. I'm presuming that it was some type of Jack Daniels, wild turkey or something to that effect. But it was a hard mm-hmm. spirit. And I remember asking him and he actually said, I am an ongoing alcoholic because I know I will always have that addiction within me no mm-hmm. matter what. Mm-hmm. And I love how that you also put into there that you were that there's always someone dealing with these demons mm-hmm. but these demons are what are allowing us to put ourselves in that denial phase mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so as someone who has dealt with this for over 10 years how much of an effect did those demons have on your children and the relationships that you had around you and how well have they been getting better over the years because that you decided to not deny it anymore I would say it had a ripple effect, really. Um, I think that even though my children and I are in a good place where we have good relationships now, I think it I think it still impacts them, to be honest. My, my relationship with them is almost more like a big sister than a mom, but it's different in the sense that they can come to me about anything. So the one positive thing in all of this is they can literally come to me with, with anything. And I have definitely heard them tell me some things that I'm going, oh my goodness. But they can come to me with anything because one of the things I've really tried to hammer home is I was close with my mom. I could have gone to her with this. This was the one thing I didn't go to her with. And I was so afraid of how she would react, but she was more mad I never came to her in the first place than she would have been if I would have just said, look, mom, I need help. And so I think that has shaped the way my kids are able to talk with me about things, even when they're really uncomfortable conversations. So in a positive way, it's got a ripple effect, but in a, in another way, it's changed the way, I mean, they, they were not raised by parents. They were raised by grandparents. And so they see like relationships a lot differently just in general, because our family is very unique. And you know what? I think it's the fact that you're so open with this. I am so appreciative that you are on here and you are telling your story because like you said, it is very unique to these situations that a lot of people don't see. They only see it through TV, radio dramas, or in books, Right. So there's always just that one idea like, oh, you have to be poor. You have to come from the other side of the tracks and go through hell and high water. Mm-hmm. There's got to be this and that. And you were that. raised with it. No. Yeah, I wasn't, though. My mom has never touched a drug in her life, you know. And so 
my dad maybe back in the day i don't know but nothing more than beer that i know of you know and so it's weird in that sense because when you when you look at the statistics right my ex-husband's parents are still married to this day they've been married probably 30 or 40 years my mom stayed married to my father till he passed away she's been married to her second husband probably close to 15 or 16 years maybe longer and you look at those statistics and you see this girl who comes from a house that's not broken and this guy who comes from a house that's not broken and we end up with this big messy lifestyle so to me i think what's important to remember is addiction really does we're all connected to somebody who's addicted we may not know it but we are whether we are a family member whether we're friends whether we're the enabler whatever it is we're all connected to somebody with addiction and addiction is non-discriminatory i have gotten high with judges i have gotten high with straight up street trash And I have gotten high with people who are just like me, their moms just trying to survive the day. And so there is, it's different races, different genders, different, what lifestyle choices, socioeconomic status, none of that matters when it comes to addiction. Um, And when you look at the opioid epidemic that was brought on by Big Pharma (laughs) in the early 2000s, and you look at those stories, it's sickening like one of the things that really impacted me emotionally was those people started off in legitimate pain they were cut off when the laws started changing and they ended up on heroin and now we see people judging those people for oh look they're just you know a junkie blah 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 and you you're seeing them on their worst day buddy you're not seeing that person they were when they were sold that this drug was not addictive and so i think we as a society, don't see the bigger, in general, don't see the bigger picture of how people become addicted. My story is unique in the sense that I probably never would have touched meth had I not been exposed to it. I'm probably 90% sure I would have never touched meth. Um, The same way these people in pain would have probably never gone to heroin if they hadn't been told a lie about this drug. And I think people don't see the whole bigger picture. And I think another thing that really, to me personally, added to the effect was, again, this is from outside looking in, is the effect of your emotional status at that point, too, of the way that you looked at yourself. So your personal viewpoint of Mm -hmm. yourself, because Mm -hmm. even in the in the book, this fictional book, Mm -hmm. it is you even see it in the in the I think it's the fourth. Yeah. Fourth chapters where you're explaining what the house looked like, how you grew up. And like every night you were looking in the mirror, in this dark mirror, and you felt you didn't like anything. I didn't like anything I saw. And I think I had low self-esteem. I had untreated trauma and a messy divorce. I mean, that that was a recipe for disaster in and of itself. You know, now introduce this person who's exposed to meth. You know, and I think that all of that played a role. And I think one of the things that we had talked about earlier I thought of was the biggest thing that I have found about recovery is I did not know who my authentic self was. And this last year I've started that journey and trying to figure out who, who is Jamie, who is Jamie and what does she want to do? And I'm kind of starting to figure that out a little bit now. And one of the things that I always say is 
I am not saying I was proud to have used meth. I'm not proud that I was addicted. I would have much rather have lived life without it. But I don't have regrets for the fact that I've been through those things. Because had I not been through those things, I can't say that I'd be where I am. I might still, I might not have never used drugs, but I might have still lived in the same small town with a mediocre life. And I feel like I'm living a completely different life because of my recovery journey, because I was forced to look at myself. Why do I have low self-esteem? What do I want to do? Why does everything like, why am I so afraid of everything? And I think like finding my journey has been the biggest blessing in all of this. Well, here's the other thing. Another blessing that I think I would add, add to that was the fact that because your children saw what it had an effect on your life as well as theirs at a young age, mm-hmm. that they have a better viewpoint of it when seeing other people that are going through it. Or if they are seeing people that are just starting that, they can say, hey, you do not want to go down this road because mm-hmm. I have seen it firsthand mm-hmm. what it does to your life. Mm-hmm. And, and all of them have said that, that they, mm-hmm. the the one good thing is they won't experiment with meth because they saw how it destroyed their entire family. And that's a great thing. And I'm going to leave with this thought on here before Marcella kicks in with her final two questions for you is that, and I'm going to get your opinion on this real quick too. Now, I know we're talking about addiction as well as just the recovery of that and the event that's gone through this. But I would ask you, do you think because of the recovery from denial, from the point of, excuse me, getting away from fear and denial and finding people in your life that actually would help you, do you think that this book and your situation would also be helpful for those who are dealing with, again, like you said earlier, coming out of the closet of the situation. But in this case, I'm going to actually do specifically that and go to the LGBTQ plus uh, community in terms of dealing with those things, dealing with denial, dealing with fear. I think, sadly, the LGBTQ community is just completely neglected. Mm-hmm. I think that even in mental health, there's, there is a push to really start focusing on that specific population because they're so underserved. And when they are going for services, they are getting so many biases. And I think regardless of where they are in their life, whether they've come out or they haven't come out, I think that they struggle with their mental health probably as much or more as the rest of us because a lot of them have to hide who they are. And in terms of addiction, you spend a lot of time hiding your addiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most people are not blatant about their addiction. And if they are, they've been addicted a long time. And I think that in, I think anybody with mental health issues as a whole could relate to this story because it does tie into mental health. Um, Most people who are addicted have a co-occurring mental health disorder. But I also think that the LBGTQ community is still an oppressed community. And so they struggle a lot more um, with getting, with even getting services. And so I think they could probably relate to a lot of the feelings in the story, especially because we're seeing higher numbers of self-harm and suicides among that population because they don't have the support they need. It's so funny, as much as we know about each other, Jamie asked me a question the other day that I I was shocked. I was shocked that you didn't know. And it yeah. just got into what we were just talking about because I, I go to Jamie a lot when I'm feeling down. 
I think we both mm-hmm. have that. We, we call each other. Um, we're, we're each other's support system. We have others, but we mm-hmm. have, I, my personal feeling is that you've been a great support to me. And when this particular um, life event happened, I, when you asked me about it, I said, wait a minute, why wouldn't I have told you? Because right. you're the one person who I'd want to tell about, you know, about this, right. want to talk to about this. So um, I didn't realize how pertinent it was in in your own struggles and, and your, your growth. Mm-hmm. Um, so many different things. Like I said, I, I, I know way too much about you. <laughs> well, and I think, I think the biggest thing is we don't all have the support like you and I have, you know, yeah. and, and, and when I can't call my mom, I can always call you when I can't yeah. call you, I can always call my mom. But mm-hmm. I think like not everybody has that person, that safe person, and it doesn't have to be a therapist. You know, you've just got to have a good, I always tell people you need three to five people you can absolutely trust to go to with your problems. But what happens to those people who can't find that one person, you know? Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. Um, You know me so well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So if Mac, if you're, if you're good, I'm going to go ahead and lead into our our last two questions. And um, so it's, and it's so funny because I already know the answer to this just because I know her, but Jamie, what is your Uh kryptonite? My writing kryptonite? Mm -hmm. Oh, my writing kryptonite is probably... I struggle with focusing, but I can't, I get bored easily. So I can only write about, so the reason these books are so short is because Jamie is ADD and she can only write about 150 pages at a time. And I've recently, one of my other projects that I'm working on, um, I write one chapter at a time and I'm actually having really good success with that because I don't procrastinate as much. So um, I think my focus leads to procrastination, and that is my kryptonite. <laughs> well, I knew about the ADHD part, um, ADD. Yeah. And uh, I, I just wanted to hear how you'd spin it, because we get a different answer every time. It's amazing. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is my writing kryptonite. All right, so last question. Uh, is there a famous quote, or just a quote in general, that you subscribe to? Something that keeps you going? Yeah, I just kind of came across it last year, and I believe it is Polonius and Hamlet, to thine own self be true. And I came across that last year and was like, it was divinely timed, because this is when I was having my midlife crisis and going, I don't know what I want to do with my life, but I don't like being a therapist. And, you know, and, and that took a lot of talking out with a fellow colleague, and she said, I don't think you found what you want to be when you grow up, honey. And once that clicked, I was like, I need to be true to myself. And and it wasn't that I didn't love what I did. It's that I didn't love it with the same amount of love I have for writing and telling stories. And I think people relate to stories. People relate to people. That's why peer supports are effective in the addiction community and the mental health community, because they can say, I've been there too. And, you know, I'm glad you actually said that because I wanted to point out real quick before we let you go is that at the end of the book, at the end of the first book that we're talking about, she actually has the numbers for the National Suicide Prevention uh, Hotline, as well as the uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration National Helpline as well. 
So go out, buy the book. There's so much in this that's going to be able to help you, especially those numbers. And I'll have those numbers in the description below as well. So well, here's a little anybody, secret. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> the book is free if you have Amazon Prime. It's free on Kindle if you have Amazon Prime. But if you like a physical hard copy, I keep them and I sign them myself. If you order directly from Amazon, you will not get a signed copy. But if you order directly from me, you get a signed copy. So there should be no excuses why everybody <laughs> should have a copy of this book. And again, I really think everybody should have the memoirs of a black sheep book one. And then you all need to go out and get lost black sheep book two. So again, Jamie, thank you for being on the show. We appreciate your time. Thank and you. Of course, please let everybody know exactly where they can find you. We already know how to get your books. Mm -hmm. So, and anything else that you would like to just close the show with. Okay. Um, so you can order the books directly from me on my website at flawedbydesignpublishing.com. Or you can find me on Facebook and send me a message and I will definitely make sure you can get a book. Or you can order straight from Amazon and you can get physical copies or you can get Kindle copies. If you want to own the book and not just borrow it, it's $4.99 for the ebook. Or if you want to borrow it and see what this book is really about, decide if you like it. You get it free with Amazon Prime and Amazon Unlimited. Thank you so much for having me, you guys. So, Max. Yes, ma'am. What do you think? Well, what did I think? I need to hear it. <sighs> you are right. She is a wonderful woman. I'm she not going to say I was wrong because. No. Usually, I, I, I mean, you did it again, Marcella. <laughs> well, well, yeah, that's that's a given anyways. So, but if you want to hear the words, yes, you did it again, Marcella. You, <laughs> you brought another wonderful author on our show. Yes. She is so loving and caring. You can you can feel the passion within her words. She has lived the life. And honestly, I'm glad I have the books. I really am. Because, again, I know people that have dealt with this. Mm -hmm. There is no excuse that I cannot, and I repeat, not give out this number for them at any point. So, yes, definitely think that uh, everybody needs to go out and get the book. Get to know Jamie on Facebook, find her on the internet, and just send all your love and appreciation towards her, as well as, you know, asking her questions, asking, you know, if there's certain things that she's done through the 10 years she's been recovering to get past this addiction. So what are your thoughts, Marcella? I'm, I'm pretty biased here. Well, yeah, but I don't yeah. care. I know you don't care. <laughs> uh, Jamie is is a wonderful friend. Uh, I pretty much stalked her, I think, when we first met. So I, I made her my friend. Um, I have this, uh, you know, what we jokingly say, Jamie and I, we have ESPN. <laughs> so I'm not even going there. <laughs> I'm leaving that one alone. I, I knew she would be an amazing friend. And I just hope that I'm an amazing friend to her. So... Um, I haven't read the book, guys. I never lie about that. Mac reads the books, but I will because I'm like begging Jamie. Jamie, I, I need to read this for you. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. 
Yep. Yep. So she was able to come in and spend the afternoon with us. Yeah, I am too. So with that being said, thank you everyone for listening on to this episode. Please continue to follow us, continue to follow Jamie at the location. She said, go out, get the book, share the book, share her story with as many people as possible and help us to, again, continue to create this community of wonderful, supportive listeners and folks that are around these authors. And like I always say, keep writing, keep inspiring, and keep sharing as you go beyond the pen. Hey folks, that's a wrap for this episode of Beyond the Pen. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to stay connected and up to date with everything Beyond the Pen, follow us on Twitter at Beyond the Pen Pod and Instagram at Beyond the Pen Podcast. For even more content and exclusive access to our guest profiles and more, make sure to visit our website at beyondthepenpodcast.com. Don't forget to join our Facebook fan page to interact with our favorite authors and fellow fans of the show. And if you want to take your Beyond the Pen experience to the next level, check out our selection of video interviews on Traverse TV's video on demand and live stream. You can access these interviews through your Roku, Amazon Fire, Apple TV, Google Play, iTunes, or the Traverse TV app. So until next time, thanks again for tuning in and remember to keep writing inspiring and sharing as you go beyond the pen.